chapter number 42 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur Piantadosi. Oliver Twist, chapter 42. Chapter 42. An old acquaintance of Oliver, exhibiting decided marks of genius, he was a public character in the metropolis. Upon the night which Nancy, having lulled Mr. Sykes to sleep, hurried on a self-imposed mission to Rose Maley, there advanced towards London, by the Great North Road, two persons upon whom it is expedient that this history should bestow some attention. They were a man and old woman, or perhaps they would be dead to describe as male and female, for the former was one of those long-limbed, knock-kneed, shambling, bony people, to whom it is difficult to assign any precise age, looking as they do, when they are not yet boys, like undergrown men, and when they are almost men, like under-overgrown boys. The woman was young, but of robust and hardy make as she need had been to bear the weight of the heavy bundle which was strapped to her back her companion was not encumbered with much luggage as there merely dangled from a stick which he carried over his shoulder a small parcel wrapped in a common handkerchief and apparently light enough this circumstance added to the length of his legs which were of unusual extent enabled him with much ease to keep some half-dozen paces in advance of his companion to whom he occasionally turned with an impatient jerk of the head, as if reproaching her tardiness and urging her to greater exertion. Thus they toiled along the dusty road, taking little heed of any object within sight, save when they stepped aside to allow wider passage for the mail coaches which were whirling out of town, until they passed through Highgate Archway, wherein the foremost traveller stopped and called impatiently to a companion, "'Come on, Carrier!' What a lazy boat you are, oh Charlotte. It's a heavy load, I can tell you, said the female, coming up almost breathless with fatigue. Amy, what are you talking about? What are you made for? rejoined the male traveller, changing his own little bundle as he spoke into the other shoulder. Oh, there you are. Rest in again. Well, if you are enough to tie any boy's presents and so, I don't know what it is. It more further, asked the woman, resting herself against the bank and looking up from the perspiration streaming on her face. More further, you're a goody there, said a long-legged tramper, pointing out before him. Look there, those are the lights of London. They're a good two mile off at least said the woman despondently. Never more were there two my awful twenty, said Noah Claypole, for he it was. But get up and come all or kick ye, and so I'll give ye notice. As Noah's red nose grew redder with anger, and as he crossed the road while speaking, as he fully repaired to put his threat into execution, the woman rose without any further remark and trunged onward with his side. Where do you mean to stop for the night, Noah? she asked, as they had walked a few hundred yards. How should I know? replied Noah, whose temper had been considerably impaired by walking. Near, I hope, said Charlotte. 
No, not near, replied Mr. Waver. There, not near, so don't think it. Why not? Well, tell you I heard me do a thing, I was in nowhere, any why or because either, replied Mr. Claypool with dignity. Well, you need be so cross, said his companion. Breathe, it would be, wouldn't it, to go and stop in there, public house outside town, so the sour it came up after us, might poke in his own nose, and I was taking him out in the cart with handcuffs on, said Mr. Claypole, in a jeering tone. No, I should go and lose myself among the narrow streets I can find, and not stop till we come the very only the way that I'd set eyes on. Caught that you thank your stores I go ahead. Or if we hadn't gone at first the wrong road of purpose and come back across country, you'd have been locked up on fast a week ago, me lady. You'd serve you right for being a fool. I know it ain't cunning as you are, replied Charlotte, but you put all the blame on me and say I should have been locked up. You would have been if I had been, hadn't we? You took the money from me too, you know you did, said Mr. Playpole. I'll talk it for you, no idea, joined Charlotte. Did I keep it? asked Mr. Claypole. No, you trusted me and let me carry it like a deer, and so you are, said the lady, chuckling him under the chin and drawing her arm through his. This was indeed the case, but as it was not Mr. Claypole's habit to repose a blind and foolish confidence in anybody, it should be observed, in justice to that gentleman, that he had trusted Charlotte in this extent, in order that, if they were pursued, the money might be found on her, which would leave him an opportunity of asserting his innocence of any theft, and would greatly facilitate his chances of escape. Of course, he entered at this juncture into no explanation of his motives, and they walked on very lovingly together. In pursuance of this cautious plan, Mr. Claypole went on, without halting, until he arrived at the Angel Islington, where he wisely judged from the crowd of passengers and numbers of vehicles that London began in earnest. Just pausing to observe which appeared the most crowded streets, and consequently the most to be avoided, he trotted into St. John's Road, and was soon deep in the obscurity of the intricate and dirty ways which, lying between Gray's Inn Lane and Smithfield, Render that part of the town one of the lowest and worst that improvement has left in the midst of London. Through these streets Noah Playpool walked, dragging Charlotte after him, now stopping into the kennel to embrace at a glance the whole external character of some small public-house, not joking on again, as some fancied appearance induced him to believe it was too public for his purpose. At length he stopped in front of one, more humble in appearance and more dirty than any he had yet seen, and having crossed over and surveyed it from the opposite pavement, graciously announced his intention of putting up there for the night. So give off the bundle, said Nair, unstrapping it from the woman's shoulders and stinging out of his own. And don't you speak, speak when you're spoken to. What's the name of the house? Three, th three what? Cripples, said Charlotte. Three cripples, repeated Noah. A very good sign, too. Now then, keep close to my heels and come along.
With these injunctions, he pushed the rattling door with his shoulder and entered the house, followed by his companion. There was nobody in the bar but a young Jew, who, with his two elbows on the counter, was reading a dirty newspaper. He stared very hard at Noah, and Noah stared very hard at him. If Noah had been attired in his charity's boy's dress, there might have been some reason for the Jew opening his eyes so wide. But as he decarted the coat and badge, and wore a short smock frock above it with his leathers, there seemed no particular reason for his appearance exciting so much attention in the public house. Is this the great cripples? asked Noah. That is the dab of this house, replied the Jew. I genuinely we men on road coming up from the country recommending us here said Nair, nudging Charlotte, perhaps to call her attention to this most ingenious device for attracting respect, and perhaps to warn her to betray no surprise. We won't sleep here tonight. I certainly you card, said Barney, was the attendant sprite, but all in quiet. Show us a dap and give us a bit of bone meat and drop a beer away your quarry, will you? said Nair. Barney complied by ushering them into a small back room, and setting the required viands before them, having done which, he informed the travellers that they could be lodged that night, and left the amiable couple to their refreshments. Now this back room was immediately behind the bar, and some steps lower, so that any person connected with the house, undrawing a small curtain which concealed a small angle pane of glass fixed in the wall of the last-named apartment, but five feet from its flooring, could not only look down upon any guests in the back room without any great hazard of being observed, the glass being in a dark angle of the wall between which and a large bright beam the observer had to trust himself, but could, by applying his ear to the partition, ascertain with tolerable distinctness their subject to conversation. The landlord of the house had not withdrawn his eye from this place of espial for five minutes, and Barney had only just returned from making the communication above related when Fagin, in the course of his evening business, came into the bar to inquire for some of his young pupils. Oosh, said Barney, strangers in his neck room. Strangers, repeated the old man with a whisper. Ah, and room back too, added Barney. From me country, but sort me in your way, or all be mistaked. Fagin appeared to receive this communication with great interest. Mounting a stool, he cautiously applied his ear to the pane of glass, from which secret post he could see Mr. Claypole taking cold beef from the dish, and porter from the pot, and administering homeopathic doses of both to Charlotte, who sat patiently by, eating and drinking at her pleasure. Ah, he whispered, looking round to Barney. I like the cavalier's looks. He'd body of use to us. He knows how to train the girl already. Don't make as much noise as mouse, my dear. Let me hear him talk. Let me hear him. He again applied his eye to the glass, and turning his ear to the petition, listened attentively with a subtle and eager look upon his face that might have appertained to some old goblin. So I mean to be a gentleman, said Mr. Claypole, kicking out his legs. 
and continuing his conversation, the commencement of which Fagin had arrived too late to hear. They bought jolly old coffins, the darling, but a gentleman law for me. And if you law, you should be a lady. I should lie that way enough, dear, replied Charlotte. But you'll think you be empty every day, and people get clear off after it. Dew's been blowed, said Mr. Claypool. There's more English on till to be emptied. What do you mean? asked his companion. Pockets! Pumas reading use houses, mail coaches, bonks! said Mr. Claypole, rising with the porter. Pocket can't do all that, all right, dear, said Charlotte. Oh, you look out again in company with M.L.'s corn, replied Noah. They will make him useful somewhere or another. Why, you yourself all fifty women. I never see such a precious lord, seaville creatures, you can be the way I let you. Lord, how nice it is that you say so, exclaimed Charlotte, and printed a kiss upon his ugly face. There, that'll do. Don't you make too affectionate, in case I'm cross with you. Said Nah, disengaging himself with great gravity. Oh, you lie, me, a captain's on board, and have the whooping of them and follow him about, only known to themselves. Always suit me, yeah, we go profit, and we go really get him with some gentleman of this sort. I say it would be cheaper that by bone you, you got, especially as we don't know very well now how to get rid of it ourselves. After expressing this opinion, Mr. Claypole looked into the porter pot with an aspect of deep wisdom, and having well shaken its contents, nodded condescendingly to Charlotte, and took a draught, wherewith he appeared greatly refreshed. He was meditating another, when the sudden opening of the door, and the appearance of a stranger, interrupted him. A stranger was Mr. Fagin, and very amiable he looked, and a very low bow he made. As he advanced, and setting himself down on the nearest table, ordered something of, to drink of the greening barney. A pleasant night, sir, but cool for the time of year, said Fagin, rubbing his hands. From the country, I see, sir. How do you see that? asked Noah Claypole. We've not so much dust as that in London replied Fagin, pointing from Noah's shoes to those as a companion, and them to the two bundles. You're a short fellow, said Noah. Ha ha ha! Only hear that, Charlie! My one needs to be sharp in this town, my dear, replied the Jew, sinking his voice to a confidential whisper. And that's the truth. Fagin followed up this remark by striking the side of his nose with the right forefinger, a gesture which Noah attempted to imitate, nor not with complete success, in consequence of his own nose not being large enough for the purpose. However, Mr. Fagin seemed to interpret the endeavour as expressing a perfect coincidence with his opinion, and put about the liquor which Barney appeared with in a very rendy manner. Gustova! observed Mr. Claypole, smacking his lip. Dear, a man need be always emptying till 
or a pocket, or a woman's reticule, or a house, or a mail coach, or a bank, if he drinks it regularly. Mr. Claypole no sooner heard this extract from his own remarks than he sailed back in his chair and looked from the jewel to Charlotte with a countenance of ashy paleness and excessive terror. Don't mind me, my dear, said Fagin, drawing us closer. It was lucky it was only me that heard you by chance. It was very lucky it was only me. I didn't take it, stammered Noah, no longer stretching at his legs like an embedded gentleman, but coying him up as well as he could under a chair. It was all her doing. You go in now, Charlie. You know you have. No matter who's got it or who did it, my dear replied Fagin, glancing nevertheless with the hawk's eye at the girl and the two bundles. I'm in that way myself, and I like you for it. In what way? asked Mr. Claypole, a little recovering. In that way of business, rejoined Fagin, and so are the people of the house. You've hit the right nail upon the head, and are as safe here as you could be. There is not a safer place in all this town than is the cripples, that is, when we like to make it so. And I've taken the fancy to you and the young woman, so I've said the word. You may make your minds easy. Noah Claypole's mind might have been at ease after this assurance, but his body certainly was not, for he shuffled and writhed about into various uncouth positions, eyeing his new friend, meanwhile, with mingled fear and suspicion. I'll tell you more, said Fagin, after he reassured the girl, writing friendly nods and much encouragements. I have got a friend, I think, that will ratify your darling wish and put you in the right way where you can take whatever department of the business you think will suit your best at first, and be taught to all the others. You speak as you were earliest, replied Noah. What advantage would it be to me to be anything else? inquired Fagin, shrugging his shoulders. Here, let me have a word with your heart side. Ain't no occasion to trouble ourselves to move, said Noah, getting his legs to her gradual freeze abroad again. She'll take the luggage upstairs a while. Charlotte, see them bundles. This mandate, which had been delivered with great majesty, was obeyed without the slightest demur, and Charlotte made the best of her way off with the packages while Noah held the door open and watched her out. She kept glory well on ain't she? he asked as he resumed his seat in the tone of a keeper who has tamed some wild animal. Quite perfect, rejoined Fagin, clapping him on the shoulder. You're a genius, my dear. Well, suppose I won't, I shouldn't be here, replied now. But I say, you'll be bowing in lose time. Now what do you think? said Fagin. If you was to like my friend, could you better than join him? I see a good way of business, that's where it is, responded Noah, winking one of his little eyes. 
The top of the tree employs a power of hands. It's the best of the best society in the profession. Rocking the town, Mounders? asked Mr. Claypole. Not a countryman among them, but I don't think he'll take you, even on my recommendation, if he didn't run rather short of assistance just now, replied Faggy. Sure, after I hand over, said Noah, slapping his breeches pocket. It couldn't possibly be done without, replied Fagin, in a most decided manner. Twenty pound, though, is a lot of money. Not when it's in a note you can't get rid of, rejoined Fagin. Number and date taken, I suppose. Payment stopped at the bank. Ah, it's not worth much to him. He'll have to go abroad, and he couldn't sell it for a great deal in the market. Won't go or see him, asked Noah doubtfully. Tomorrow morning. Where? Here. Mm, said Noah. What was the wages? Live like a gentleman. Board and lodging, pipe and spirits free, half of all you earn, and half of all the young woman earns, replied Mr. Fagin. With a Noah Claypole, whose rapacity was none of the least comprehensive, would have acceded even to these glowing terms had he been a perfectly free agent, is very doubtful. But as he recollected that, in the event of his refusal, it was in the power of his new acquaintances to give him up to justice immediately, and more unlikely things had come to pass, he gradually relented, and said he thought that would suit him. But we see, observed Noah, I see women having to do a good deal. I should like to take something very light. Little fancy work, suggested Fagin. Uh, Somewhere I saw, replied Noah. Well, you ain't gonna suit me now. Not, not too trial for the strength. Not very dangerous, you know. That's the sort of thing. I heard you talk of something in the spy way upon the others, my dear, said Fagin. My friend wants somebody who'll do that very, very much. Well, I didn't mention you not. I shouldn't more turn my head to it sometimes, joined Mr. Claypole slowly. But who pay by itself, you know? That's true, observed the Jew, ruminating, or pretend to ruminate. No, it might not. What do you think, then? asked Noah, anxiously regarding him. Some in a sneaky way, why well, was pretty sure work, and no more rent or risk in being at home. What do you think of the old ladies? asked Fagin. There's a great deal of money made in snatching their bags and parcels and running round the corner. Do they all out a good deal and scratch sometimes? asked Noah. Shaking his head, oh, dang it, went on to my high purpose. I know any old lie open. Stop, said Fagin, laying his hand on Noah's knee. The kitchen lad, 
What was that? demanded Mr. Claypole. Cheedens, my dear, said Fane, is the young children that sent on errands by their mothers with six pence and shillings and their layers just to take their money away. They've always got it ready in their hands. They knock them into the kennel and walk up very slow, as if there was nothing else the matter that the child had fallen down and hurt itself. <laughs> roared Mr. Claypole, kicking his legs in ecstasy. Lord, what a thing! To be sure it is, replied Fagin, and you can have a few good beats chalked up out in Camden Town and Battlebridge, neighbourhoods like that, where they're always going errands and go upset as many kitchens as you want any hour of the day. <laughs> With this, Fagin poked Mr. Waypole on the side and then joined in a burst of laughter both long and loud. Oh, that's all right, said Noah, when he had recovered himself and shouted return. What time tomorrow, shall we say? We'll attend, Fagin, adding, as Mr. Claypole nodded his scent, what name shall I tell my good friend? Mr. Bowser, replied Noah, who had prepared himself for such an emergency. Mr. Morris Bowser. This is Mrs. Bowser. Mrs. Bowser's humble servant, said Fagin, bowing with grotesque politeness. I hope I shall know her better very shortly. You hear the gentleman, Charlotte? thundered Mr. Claypole. Yes, now, dear, replied Mrs. Bolter, extending her hand. She called me Noah's, it's all a full way of talking, said Mr. Morris Bolter, let Claypole, turning to Fagin. You understand? Oh, yes, I understand perfectly. Applied Fagin, telling the truth for once. Good night, good night. With many adieus and good wishes, Mr. Fagin went his way. No playpoil, bespeaking his good lady's attention, proceeded to enlighten her relative to the arrangement he had made, with all that haughtiness and air of superiority becoming not only a member of the sterner sex, but a gentleman who appreciated the dignity of a special appointment on the kitcheningy day in London and its vicinity. End of chapter 42 of Oliver Twist